you had the chance, would you change the world? Welcome. I am your host, Ebony Gustav, and this is Cooperative Journal, where I interview mutual aid initiatives and cooperatives from around the world who are creating alternatives to our current economic system. Woodbine is a DIY, volunteer-run community resource hub located in Ridgewood, Queens, New York. It's all-encompassing of solidarity and truly an example of how community centers should be designed in neighborhoods. It's intended to cultivate the practices, skills, and tools needed to build autonomy. They host workshops, lectures, discussions, and serve as a meeting and organizing space. They offer a multitude of ways to get community members' needs met, like through their seed library, trades and services directory, English classes, and more. In this episode, I speak with one of the co-founders, Matt Peterson, and volunteer Amoga Sahu about the creation and sustainability of this mutual aid hub. We speak about how they gathered the funds to get started and how they managed to not only sustain themselves, but move into a bigger space during the pandemic. They've been around since 2014, and most DIY spaces don't last in New York City, so this is pretty major. You'll learn about some of the free events, tools, and resources available to the community, like their recently installed mesh internet network. Matt shares an interesting perspective on decision-making structures and accountability within a volunteer-run space, which tends to be the most difficult aspects of running a non-hierarchical space. At the end, there's some tips offered on how others can build an autonomous community-centered hub in the city. All right. Thank you so much, Matt and Amoog, for joining the podcast. I'm really looking forward to learning more about Woodbine. I actually just recently learned about it less than a month ago uh, at this collective's community dinner. And yeah, they spoke really highly of you. And you're not too far from where I am. I actually used to live on the border of Ridgewood and Bed-Stuy, so... Um, it was heartening to know that this is happening so close to home. And it's actually really similar to an idea that I've been conceptualizing um, with a worker co-op that I'm a part of. So can you please explain what Woodbine is and what inspired its creation? So Woodbine is a community and cultural space in Ridgewood, Queens. It's, it's all volunteer run and it started at the beginning of 2014, uh, mostly by a group of friends that had experienced the anti-globalization movement together, you know, the anti-war movement around Iraq and Afghanistan, and then had sort of lived through the financial crisis up until, you know, Occupy Wall Street. You know, there were student movements before Occupy Wall Street around the time of the 2008 financial crisis that people have participated in. So these were all, you know, formative experiences and movements that people participated in. And then Occupy, people really came together, whether they met each other in that movement or kind of got to know each other better through collaborating in that movement. And then, you know, the progression would go to Hurricane Sandy in 2012 in New York City, which really kind of devastated parts of the city and really made us re-examine what living in the city meant. And it was at that point we decided to kind of start a space together and live, you know, if we could in the same neighborhood together and help run that space and really reimagine and reconfigure how we lived in the city together as a group of friends or a collective and or reorient our political um, sense around a physical space or rather than campaigns or just protesting against things or running around individually to various meetings or events or rallies or demonstrations to resituate ourselves as a group of people that kind of ran a space together um, and, and think about what that would mean or look like and, and how we thought about politics or thought about New York City. So, so Woodbine is, is basically the result of all of that. Um, and, you know, it started in 2014 and there's its own kind of evolution that it's taken since then. But that's really the kind of background of what animated it, you know, starting in the way it, the way we did. Yeah, and the space itself is quite political. And it's a way of, I think, 
um, advocating against the current political situation in a communal way, like giving people an alternative, a solution, instead of just like protest protesting, um, but not really giving alternatives. Interesting, because uh, I mean, you say it's political, but it's very much unlike a lot of other political spaces in the city in the sense that there isn't like a discrete set of demands or a specific set of like Elect, election oriented or otherwise campaign oriented like political actions you're given much more i think a kind of freedom to like explore your own relationship to like the issues that are discussed in the events that are held in the space uh, or even like more concretely like there's a kind of like ethical thing which goes deeper than like um you know the political issue of the day where you know you're, as you said, interacting with the community around you, making stuff together, doing stuff together um, in a way which isn't like, wouldn't be recognized like in a lot of spaces in the city as like capital P political work, you know? Um, so there's a kind of like freedom and open texture to it, which I think is quite useful, particularly for like people like me. Um, and I mean, many others who like, don't feel like they easily slot into the different kinds of categories of like political activity in in the city um yeah yeah so it's so i mean it's it's de but it's definitely a political space i mean matt's spoken about the history um at one point i um i, I was um, i understand that there was like much more explicit kind of political framing um and they're definitely like you know if, if you choose to hunt for them, there are definitely like theoretical currents of, of various kinds, like, you know, I don't want to say haunting the space, <laughs> but like, uh, you know, it's uh, like people, people have clearly thought about this space and have clearly there's like some level of like intention that goes into like how the space works. And that's like inspired by all kinds of kinds of stuff, but like, you know, no one, barrages you with like that content and no one asks you to like sign up to like a manifesto or whatever so it's like that's i think an interesting feature yeah since you already started talking about uh bringing people in from the community how do you guys bring people in how are you interacting with the community i mean i think one of the things also related to this question of being a political space is we've tried to think of ourselves as like political people but running more of like a community or cultural space. And maybe that's some of the kind of ambiguity or openness that Amog's talking about, where we do a lot of cultural programming, you know, events programming, community programming that is not so dogmatic or ideologically, you know, framed or focused or driven. Like, you know, we had this screening that you came to, you know, a week or so ago and you know, last night we had, you know, just a dinner, open community dinner. We have, we've had Sunday dinners at the space since 2014. And we just recently started up again a few weeks ago because we took about a year break because of the pandemic. And that was really the most public interface, just having an open community meal. You know, it's not a meeting, it's not an event, it's not a presentation or a panel or something like that. It's just a dinner. And that kind of gives people an easier way to kind of uh, relate to the space and get to know the people and just sort of talk and hang out where you have a lot of time, you know, you have hours to talk to different people and get to know like who they are, what are they thinking about, what's, what's their life like right now in a very kind of human and formal way that's not like professionalized in the context of like a formal meeting or assembly or something like that. And obviously recently during the pandemic in March of 2020, we started a food pantry out of the space, which was, you know, one of our most obviously successful outreach forms because we were just doing visible, you know, on the street food distribution twice a week now for, I don't know, maybe about 15, 16 months that we've sort of maintained that, you know, consistently. So that was easy just visibly, you know, people would see us on uh, literally on the street, just giving out food and and either want to get involved either to receive, you know, the things we were giving away or to help volunteer, you know, especially last year, a lot of people were unemployed um, or, you know, weren't working or weren't commuting to school or work. So had a lot more time on their hands. So when, you know, hun literally hundreds of people, you know, got involved to volunteer and we probably served, you know, thousands of families in the neighborhood or something. So this last year was a real spike for us in terms of, um, you know, really relating to the neighborhood and the community in a much deeper way 
perhaps than we had been doing before just as a kind of cultural or political community space that we were operating in before the pandemic. Yeah, I think it's awesome that you guys create these events where people can have more informal discussions to get to know each other, which may or may not end up turning into a political discussion. But it's definitely because I feel like some political dis- uh, spaces may be intimidating to people that are not familiar with that. But you guys are kind of um, bridging a gap between it and offering a slew of events that may be political or may not for people to learn skills and commune with each other. I know that you guys have had events around like medicine making as well, um, but also having screenings that may spark something within someone to shift their perspective or to have a discussion with someone that's sitting next to them. And yeah, I also know that you guys offer some tools in the space too that the community can use. So can you speak on that? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I think what's really interesting, I mean, Matt can speak to some of the more practical stuff, but I think what's like really interesting about the mix of programming um, um, is that like all kinds of stuff like bleeds into each other in a way that it wouldn't otherwise. Right. So it's like, if we were just holding screenings, if we were just holding like cultural events, um, if we were just, you know, if this was just a mutual aid space or something like that, like, I mean, and lots of other spaces in the city are a bit like that. Um, you wouldn't have some of the like very fertile, like tensions, I'm not tensions exactly, but like interesting interactions between people who are doing all kinds of different stuff. Right. So it's like, you know, um, there are people like, like, I'm a bit like this, you know, who sort of like the, um, my main relationship to like Woodbine is like, you know, the more quote unquote like intellectual or political elements of the of the space but like you know there's this constant interaction both with like the more practical side um, because you know people are here all the time doing pantry stuff and as you said you know um, teaching classes on you know all kinds of all kinds of practical skills and that's like that's uh, that's always always been very helpful um, uh, I mean I've always found that like very helpful and, and, and interesting as like something to bounce off of or something to center yourself or something to something to kind of ground the sort of like you know often like very abstract and strange stuff that like constitutes the sort of like theoretical like the political practice or the intellectual Mm -hmm. practice of the space um and that's like that's that's what's extremely valuable about the space that like you know um it isn't you know there's so much stuff happening often at the same time right and uh, there's like a kind of very productive, like bumping up against kind of dynamic, which which I find very helpful. Um. Yeah, I think, you know, just to follow up on a Moog saying, you know, combining like, you know, we have a wood shop, we have like a, a gym, like a fitness room, you know, we have the, you know, refrigeration for all the food, you know, me, you know, sewing machines for masks. We have this bike program now where we're kind of, fixing and cleaning bikes to give out to the neighborhood. And once you combine that with some of the kind of study groups or screening series or, you know, intellectual presentations or political, you know, we had an event last week about the disappeared in Mexico. And I think one of the, one of the, you know, interventions of the space is to combine all of those things and put them on an equal playing field and put the, the facilitators and organizers in dialogue with each other and then put all those audiences, so to speak, or communities in dialogue with each other speaks to kind of the fullness of life that we're interested in or the fullness of life that we think politics needs to be to kind of make you physically, you know, adjacent and aware and confront, you know, have to confront all these other practices and kind of skills and, you know, you know, ways of seeing the world or something. So we're kind of not just cocooned or in these bubbles or something and and that's really the nature of maintaining a physical space is different than if each of us were just individually working on some campaign or practice or something because we have to share the space with these other groups and practices and people and you know there's a lot of overlap there's not that many people that just do one thing you know the same people 
cook who you know coordinate the screening series who fix things you know you know when we have electricity issues or something and how do we blur our skill sets together and learn different things and teach each other new things basically it's one of you know why we organize around a physical space what that opens up i think right it's completely all-encompassing which is you know the nature of the world that we live in too that we need all of these different aspects and diverse skills and opinions uh, to create a more resilient community and essentially you guys are creating a space where people can be self-sufficient and have community agency and i think that really spaces like this should be popping up all over cities because you know we don't like these are things it's almost like homesteading meets political uh intervention and we need spaces like that in the city and so i'm curious to know oh before that though i know that you guys also have a mesh network that you recently popped up and on your roof and so i want you to speak a little bit about that before i go on to the next thing oh i mean i think neither amogra are necessarily you know the experts on the mesh and this is something you know where there's different people have different technical skills and interests but you know the mesh is a kind of from what i understand you know a satellite driven you know form of you know internet connection that is outside of the private companies like you know verizon or spectrum or whatever you know whatever ways people connect to the internet and it's sort of free and autonomous and you can connect to the internet you know without having to be surveilled or pay for these private ways and it's through satellite through on roof connections basically and the more you know satellite connections there are the stronger the signal is the stronger the network is which then becomes kind of a metaphor technically for just resilient communities in general where the more kind of nodes you have around different neighbors in the city the stronger that you know network or community is so the the mesh itself is a good you know way to think about how we want to strengthen ourselves within new york city in general as as communities you know the because a big part of it isn't the technical thing of the satellite it's the it's the density of, of the amount of satellites or something and that's really a community initiative you know and i agree with you you know as far as uh, any kind of model it would be that like there would be things like woodbine in you know every neighborhood in the city and i think if neighborhoods were kind of organized like that and people were organized like that you know there would be different kind of potential and i think you know that's one of the things we saw during covid with the spontaneous mutual aid initiatives that popped up around Google Docs and Facebook groups and kind of social media in general, where people in neighborhoods all over the city and the country were coming together to meet these needs, you know, in their communities that weren't being met by the state. And, you know, people weren't working, so they didn't have money or didn't have access to healthcare and, and things like that. So we saw that last year with mutual aid but you know now something like woodbine was how do we make that more permanent and build material infrastructure and maintain maintain material infrastructure to be able to you know uh, keep that community going keep that network going and and build you know build stuff build resources for people that can access whether or not there's you know a pandemic or a financial crisis or a, a climate disaster because we have to anticipate that things like that will to con continue to come and you know resilience means sort of being prepared as as a community or a neighborhood or a group of friends or comrades to you know survive those things but be able to respond to those things and share those sort of tools and skills so you know the mesh is just one part of that broader approach or framework to kind of um yeah, experience things like that, you know, but the mesh becomes a good, I think, metaphor for all of those other dynamics that we're talking about. And the mesh is helpful because it like demonstrates like how like uh, sort of non-centralized a lot of like Woodbine's operations are like, you know, as Matt was saying, neither he nor I like necessarily like <laughs> know the technical ins and outs of how the, how the mesh works, but it's kind of there and, you know, it's kind of... <laughs> in some sense like it's sort of like another one of the it's like you know it's like a it's like a mushrooming 
thing, you know, it's like there's all kinds of stuff going on, which is uh, like, we would, neither of us would like necessarily ever think of, but like we're, once it's there, we're kind of very glad it's there. And like, you right. know, um, as, as to like Woodbine as a model, I mean, this is like a slightly bigger conversation, but like, um, you know, one of the things that I found like interesting about the space is that like, um, there are actually like a lot of obstacles to like stuff like Woodbine being, uh, being like generalized. I mean, like Woodbine is, I think like a really special and interesting space. I mean, I, don't get me wrong. I think I could, could do great work. Like, I think it would be great, but like, you know, as Matt was saying, like there's all of this like political history and memory that goes into the space. There's all this experience. Um, there's all of these people who like have a certain kind of like dedicated mission to making it work, you know? Um, and like, there are like reasons why, um, you know, in like other parts of the city, like, I mean, most often like financial reasons, like, you know, um, uh, a woodbine in, the, in like the Upper West Side would be like, <laughs> for lots of reasons, like quite different. Um, um, there are like lots of re- there are like pressures in like other parts of the city and like in other parts of the country that like you know prevent the formation of spaces like this, which I think are like very interesting to think through. And they're like particularly as like woodbines like expanding right now because of like the reopening and we recently started holding public events again. Um, it's kind of very interesting to observe like you know, um, the sort of new dynamic and new ecosystem for the space, you know, in the, in, I was about to say a post-COVID world, but that's probably like much, much, much too soon. At least let's say the post first set of lockdowns world or something. Um, um, yeah, so it's, I think, I think like it's always, it's, uh, it's always been like for me very like tricky to think about like, um, like the woodbine model as like a more abstract thing which could just be put in place in other places like i do i think i like uh i do tend to think of it as like you know um its own thing and i'm like i'm very interested to see like uh like in the future if people like want to try to generalize this in some way and like how they do that because i think there are like lots of tricky and interesting issues right and i've also thought about how all these mutual aid groups have popped up during the pandemic and whether or not they will be sustainable. And I think having a permanent space like what you guys provide is so important to that sustenance. And I've noticed that DIY spaces generally don't last in the city. So to your point, Amog, I'm curious to know what you think has sustained Woodbine for so long. I mean, I think one of the core things, and this is something I was thinking about recently, because, you know, Woodbine now it's, you know, it's been around for seven years. And like you're saying, you know, that's quite a long time in New York City for these kind of experimental, independent DIY spaces, you know, even a lot of commercial spaces, you know, like, you know, I was really into music, you know, in high school and college, and, you know, so many of my favorite venues close, you know, bars, and they couldn't even sustain themselves commercially. So then for us as a non-commercial space, it's even more kind of exceptional because it's like we're not selling beer and alcohol to kind of cover the rent or something. Um, But I think, you know, one of the things I've been thinking about recently is really the kind of skills you need to run a space like this, but also to be part of a community or collective, which has its own idiosyncrasies and can be kind of messy and complicated at times, is you really need people that are invested in and devoted to problem solving, you know, and and because it's not all idealistic where you think about, you know, politics and utopian futures and communes and pedagogy, you know, sometimes, you know, the sink leaks, you know, the toilet breaks, the basement leaks, the electricity doesn't work, there's a flood. And that's when you really start to understand within a collective, you know, who's devoted to the problem solving of that. And how do you make more space and give, you know, a lot of care to those people who are going to show up and clean the flood in the basement or kind of fix the sink or, you know, we have, you know, we need better air conditioning right now and who kind of shows up to fix the air conditioning. And that's different than a lot of the, you know, more kind of cool or sexy or radical, polemical, provocative, you know, declarative statements that people might want to make and think about in terms of running a radical political space is all of this 
you know, sexy, cool, you know, imaginative, you know, whatever, you know, discourse, but it's like to really emphasize the problem solvers and the people who kind of show up to, to deal with issues like that is, you know, those are the people who have really stuck around over the last seven years and really kind of made sure that the space continued. And, and some of those problems are financial, you know, the people who are not just the idealist, but willing to kind of dig in what are the material realities of how do we pay our rent, you know, pay our utility bills, you know, fundraise, things like that. And I think there has to, we have to be honest about how much time and work and energy goes into the administrative or logistical or bureaucratic aspects of running a space. And I think, you know, when you start a space like Woodbine, within the first year, you'll kind of start to realize that it's not all the idealist kind of work. There's a lot of, you know, bureaucratic shit administrative work that you have to do also. And you start to separate, you know, the chaff, so to speak, of who sticks around and who shows up for that work. And I think luckily we've had a group of people that stuck around and put in, you know, the time and part of resilience is continually solving problems. You know, it's not all just the happy, creative, stimulating, inspiring kind of moments of running a space, you know, but it's like who sticks around and solves the problems as they show up and the financial questions they've also there, there has never been one model. You know, it's evolved, you know, depending on who was around who was running the space what the external conditions were, you know how what whether or not our programming, you know was had an audience that supported it or not, you know, we've done a lot of crowdfunding and sometimes, you know, the crowdfunding did better than others. And that's kind of an organic, you know, do people really feel invested in the space and feel like we're really serving a real need is one of the ways people will be more generous or not, you know, whether, you know, it's, it's kind of simple in a way, but it's like, do people believe that your space needs to exist? And if they do, you know, they'll hopefully be more generous, you know, and, and that's one of the things also for us programmatically, you know, are we doing the programming that people believe in or not? Or, or is it kind of this niche esoteric thing that just a couple of us like, you know, and if we want to run it like that, then just a small group of people has to come up with a lot of money. And, you know, that that can be difficult, you know, so it's like how to balance all those things about running a collective of problem solvers and sticking around and being kind of responsive to what what our community or audience needs or wants and hoping that they kind of are generous to kind of keep the space going. And, and I think all of those things in combination and evolution over the last seven years is how we've been able to to continue to exist, basically. Yeah, it's this sense of reciprocity. You guys are fulfilling a need for the community and they can help fulfill the need for the space financially. And I know that you guys recently moved into a new space. So how did you guys get the funding for that? And when crowdfunding falls short, how do you make up for that? I mean, I think, you know, this is a good example. And, and, and this framework of mutual aid, it, was an, it wasn't necessarily a term we emphasized before, used before, but like we were just explaining, mutual aid was basically the framework of what we were doing the whole time. And, and this sort of crowdfunding support or problem solving, you know, because it's always been a volunteer run space. So it's just on the basis of belief, basically, that people would show up and kind of meet these problems or do programming or do events kind of organizing to get people to come together. And especially with the pandemic, you know, once we really pivoted to being a food pantry and doing mass production, doing ESL classes, doing home deliveries of kind of food and supplies to our neighbors, that was really obvious. And people were very generous and supportive of that. So we kind of got a lot of donations and support and, you know, Luckily, that meant, you know, the, the kind of devastation that the city was experiencing meant the commercial real estate prices in New York really plummeted. And, you know, our lease was up at the old space. So we were able to kind of negotiate with the current landlord and get, you know, a really fair, reasonable, you know, cheap price on this current space. But it was really the generosity of our community, you know, donating, contributing over the last year, you know, seeing all the work we were doing for free, basically doing the, the food pantry and mutual aid, you know, people really supported us. 
and helped us. You know, we did crowdfunding for that and also getting a bit more savvy over the last seven years, we figured out different fundraising strategies and different ways to get kind of support, you know, micro grants, getting people who work at like foundations to kind of help give us some support here, there. And, you know, we, we've never really relied on that necessarily, but we have to kind of get sad. That's part of the problem solving is getting savvy um, with fundraising in a kind of neoliberal, you know, capitalist metro metropolitan world is we have to kind of take seriously what that means and looks like, you know, we can't just be utopians and, and pretend that we don't live in a very expensive, dense metropolis. So how do we how do we navigate, you know, this kind of environment, basically, and, and we've tried to figure out some kind of loopholes, you know, along the way that that can kind of keep it going, basically. Uh, yeah. I mean, what's interesting about like thinking about the space as a mutual aid space is that like, I mean, one important difference for me would be that like uh, the space isn't like, like, like everything else isn't like instrumental towards like one particular like mutual aid project or something. Like it isn't the case that, you know, um, uh, everything everyone does is like has to in some way be like related to the pantry or like, you know, or to, you know, some particular like individual, you know, uh, thing that people decided to do. I mean, I, my experience has been, I mean, like obviously like at any given time, like people will, you know, like there'll be like big projects going on, but like both the, it's, it, I mean, it at least seems like there's like flexibility for the projects to change and there's flexibility also for like, you know, um, people to have like different levels of different kinds of involvement in like uh, the mutual aid projects that are going on. Uh, that's that's super helpful and also I mean more generally like um, like the way that anyone like baseline participates in the space is not by necessarily like you know committing to like a mutual aid project but like at the very very basic level by like being around and like uh, you know um, um, being around trying to be helpful and like interacting and being social with like people in the space right and like that's the sort of like minimum condition <laughs> that you have to cross for like quote for, to quote unquote like be part of Woodbine. And that's like really lovely because, you know, as I was saying before, there's all of these, you know, uh, because social like social life itself, like, you know, is like really nebulous and complicated, you know, that allows the space to like, you know, express a lot of those complexities in terms of like the projects or like the 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 internal organization. Um, and that's what, to me, like makes it like quite special, um, and like in some ways like different from like traditional mutual aid like kinds of organizations. Um, yeah, so I think that's so important to mention. Yeah, it sounds like there's always like a multitude of roles to play, and I'm curious how that works in a volunteer-run organization like how do you deal with decision making and holding people accountable and all of the other bureaucracy that comes along with that I mean I think decision making has been easier because you know a lot of the programs or initiatives start to run themselves you know we have Sunday dinners and people figure out what's required or needed to run a Sunday dinner and it kind of just sort of works or runs you know, the pantry over the last 15, 16 months, people figured out how to run that. You know, all of the subgroups or sub projects have their own sort of logics that people kind of organically figure out the best ways for them to work. And then, you know, we have broader meetings once every month or two with a broader kind of collective, so to speak, where we all come together and check in with each other about, you know, what, how's your project going? What's your project? You know, what do you need? And, but, they're kind of more sharing, you know, things. And in those times we talk about broader general space questions, you know, finances, or if there's sort of renovation needs, things like that, or kind of scheduling kind of, you know, we need this time for this, whatever. But um, it's more like project driven, you know, that it's, there's not a ton of like, like we encourage people to kind of bottom line or spearhead different initiatives or projects basically and that would be the core kind of framework or model of the space and then 
that would be, you know, we don't necessarily formally call it like that, but effectively like a working group, right? And then like that working group, people kind of voluntarily join or participate as much as they're able and, and they kind of carve out space for themselves, you know, in the calendar and the schedule and they kind of run it and we kind of let them run it, you know, however they're going to run it, like the mesh, the you know, mesh, you know, on the roof or whatever. It's like a, a group of people started the mesh. They told us what they needed. They did it. And like, but we don't like decide what they're going to do. Like once they bottom line that project, they're sort of autonomous to do that. You know, we have ESL classes, you know, group of people kind of figures out what they need to run, you know, English as a second language, they carve out time, they do it. So it's like, the decisions are more like what you're going to do, like what project or what kind of initiative you're going to spearhead or bottom line. And that's more like the decision, you know, and, and we really encouraging of people to experiment and try new things and, you know, people to teach ESL that have never done that before, don't know what that means, or, you know, the woodshop or whatever. And then we kind of come together almost like as an assembly just to check in with each other and kind of have, you know, report backs or updates or be like, also just brainstorm, like, how is this feeling? You know, is it working? Is it going the way you want it or we want it? Or is there some way we can help you or some way we can modify or adapt this program or initiative or something? But none of that necessarily feels like decision making. You know, I feel like this framework of decision making almost feels more like a company or like a corporate way of like thinking or something. Because like what this, you know, I don't even know what decisions we really need to make necessarily. It's more like ethical, like what, you know, like you're running this ESL group. What do you need? It's more like resources or something like how can we help or what energy or creativity do you need? But it's not like a decision. It's not like a workplace where you decide to invest in this stock versus that stock or pursue this account versus that, you know, like there's not so many like decisions necessarily. So sometimes I think, you know, in, in leftist or anarchist or political groups, they're always obsessed with like decision making, where in a lot of ways, I don't necessarily feel that that's the most important thing, you know, like it's more like how do you live or what are you doing or how do how can we support the way you want to live or act or operate or something and how to, you know, how can we encourage you to kind of experiment and grow, you know, whatever it is you're doing. And we kind of get together to talk and think about that. But yeah, it's, it's not quite like about consensus or not consensus or like a quorum of how many votes you need. Like we don't really vote on things, you know, or like we kind of talk and listen and hear what people think and what they need like recently, for example, like we were doing food distributions on Wednesdays and Fridays. But, you know, we were getting all this food over the weekends, you know, on Saturdays and Sundays. So we would have to wait until Wednesday. So people were like, you know, it probably make more sense if we switch to Monday or Wednesday. But we just sort of listened and talked and we're like, yeah, that makes sense. But it wasn't kind of like a vote or a decision. It was just like, yeah, we should just do, you know what I mean? It, it didn't feel like we were raising our hands and like counting the hands in the room or something like that. It was more just like listening and responding to what people's lives or projects sort of need or whatever. Um, so that's something I would kind of want to think about um, and just kind of be a little provocative or something. Cause I, yeah, you know, there's this obsession with like decision-making, but I'm not quite sure that that's really like the essential thing people need to think about you know in collectivity or organization or you know imagining a new life together or something because you can get really obsessed with it you know like is it consensus is it like vote is it majority and, and all these questions and it can get a little like neurotic or you know pathological you know the way people obsess about those questions I mean, one thing that's helpful like about the space is that like there isn't a strong emphasis on like having like a very specific like collective identity or like like it's not really like it's <laughs> the question is this like you know a woodbine endorsed thing is like not like <laughs> it's not like a question that like looms very large in the life of the space because it's like it's not like we don't tend to think of like the collective agent woodbine as like something separate from all the people that are like doing all these individual things so it's like there's like less of a reason to have like one specific kind of like decision-making mechanism 
like a general body meeting or like an executive committee or whatever, right? Because there isn't like, you know, like some constituency that like <laughs> this would be, this body would be like representing, right? There isn't, you know, um, um, the Woodbine group, right? As like, right. Uh, as, a, as a sort of like specific like political identity that has to be like represented somehow. And like, we have to think about like which form of organization like best expresses the will of the space or something right it's like that really isn't there right it's like it's just a sort of like a space where like a bunch of people do different things and like organically connect with each other you know um given these like shared ethical commitments and stuff yeah i think it's like yeah the people and like building trust and kind of um wanting to give space and you know we the people who it's like oh yeah we like them or you know they they're people who are problem solvers you know they're helpful they're nice they kind of help clean up after dinner and they maybe they have an idea for an event you know about the disappeared in mexico you know it was our friend greg who's really working on that question that campaign but it was more like you know like oh we like greg you know he's helpful he comes around he's like a good guy good person and this is like a cool thing so it's like yeah let's help him do it you know but it's more like we really like greg you know and obviously we care about this question of the disappeared in mexico but really it was like because greg is like a friend and comrade and helpful to us and volunteers he's built trust and like part becomes then part of the community and then we want to encourage the community to like experiment and do things and talk about the things that they're interested in you know that's really how like things happen at the space you know through the people rather than this organizational identity or something that's like superimposed as like a dogmatic set of written principles or something it's more like the kind of experience of being in community together if that makes sense completely that's a really interesting way to think about coming to getting things done. And I think it's really important at its core that people have this shared value system because once you have that, then everything around it is just coming from a space of open-mindedness, understanding, logic, and ultimately support. Like, how can I support you in this initiative that you're passionate about? And I think... The fact that people have passion and it's not like things that are being delegated to them, but they're going into it with the sense of I want to see this through, then essentially they're holding themselves accountable or their subgroup is holding them accountable as well because they want to make this happen. And I think that just speaks to the value that they see in the space and yeah, I think decision making sometimes can just cause like more conflict than help the situation. So that's really cool that you guys are able to sustain for so many years using a very like informal, I wouldn't even call it process. It's just like getting things done um, by the people and for the people. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the real question, I think, and the almost like pedagogical thing, for lack of a better word, or thing we want to facilitate is how do you facilitate people to have passion, or to have self confidence or to experiment and try different things? Because that's really, I think, what we want as like a movement, you know, even broader than Woodbine itself is, you want people to like have things they're interested or curious about, and then follow through on them. And that's really, I think, what we're interested in is like, what do you want to do or what are you interested in or what do you want to help or volunteer with and like how do we how can we help you realize that or achieve that or something and i think as like a movement that should be the orientation or disposition or something as we want people to kind of realize themselves or actualize themselves or have curiosities or passions but and then that also means like doing things that we don't know how to do you know it's not just like if like Omog was saying, a lot of it is just physically being at the space. So it's like if we're at the space and the sink breaks, it's like, I don't know anything about sinks, but now it's like, OK, it's time to learn about sinks. You know what I mean? And it's like, you know, you also have to be open to kind of try new things or like when Greg brings this this question of the disappeared in Mexico, it's like 
you know, it's like, okay, now it's time to learn about the disappeared in Mexico. And like, what is, you know, what, what is that, what is going on there? And how can I, you know, educate myself and learn about this kind of question or something, but it's like this collective form of education where people are bringing different things and new things. And we kind of learn together along the way, you know, whether it's you know the sink or this kind of, you know, horrific kind of state violence, you know, happening just south of the border. And it's like the space kind of combines both of those skill sets where it's not just like, you're in school or you're a journalist or an activist and it's just the question in Mexico. It's also like the daily life of like, how do I cook a dinner for 40 people also, you know, and how do we, how do I learn those skills, you know? And I think that the idea is that it going through that over months or years as you become, you know, a better comrade or a fuller kind of partisan of like a radical movement, you know, that you can exist on those different registers, you know, simultaneously. Yes, and a fuller human. Uh, and Amok, I know that you started volunteering at the space in 2019, and I'm curious to know what was your intention, what was your passion, or what is your passion that you want to bring to the space? I mean, I think it changed quite a bit. In 2019, I wouldn't really say I was uh, as involved with the space as I am now. Um, I think in 2019, I mean, I come from a sort of academic background and, uh, you know, a lot of my, a lot of the way I initially related to the space, like, I, I mean, this was like not, not really, I think, ideal, but like initially I did think of it more as just like, okay, here is another forum in the city where you can like, you know, it's like here is another workshop, right, um, which, uh, you know, for in, in the academic sense where like a bunch of people, you know, like intellectuals or whatever across the city, you know, come and give talks about like their topics of interest or like left-wing intellectual stuff or whatever. Um, and, it, and at the time I remember thinking, oh, well, there's also this dinner stuff going on, but this is like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> a quirk of the space or it's like something else. And I like, I don't think at the time I like really internalized it or thought about it. I just kind of thought it was like, nifty and cool that like you know <laughs> you know i could get a free bite <laughs> you know after, after enjoying after enjoying a talk and you know it's like uh, particularly when you're like i don't know the way you move a lot of people move to the city especially if they're from you know manhattan coming from manhattan is that like you know um you're kind of your passage through the city on any given day is like you know you're trying to like minimize the amount you spend and you're like constantly observing the amount of like, you know, um, time and effort and space the city is like trying to like suck away from you as you try to, you know, get through the day. Um, and like initially the way, like I think a lot of people experience Woodbine is just like a respite from that. And like, uh, you know, a little bit of like a rest for your like psyche because like, you know, the space doesn't feel like other places in the city, which are just like, what can I, what can I take from you <laughs> while, while you're here, you know, Woodbine kind of tries to give things to you. And initially I was like, I was like slightly taken aback by that aspect of it. I was just like, this seems cool. Um, but you know, this is like basically, you know, another place like, you know, academic spaces or like, you know, reading groups or whatever across the city where like people are coming together to discuss ideas because that was like my own, my own background. Um, but yeah, as I got talking to Matt through 2019 and other people around the space, um, I think my own relationship to the space is that like, um, I mean, as I say, I'm, I, have a, I have a kind of academic background and like what's interesting to, for me personally about my relationship to the space is that like, it's a really, really interesting place now to like develop ideas and like think through stuff because of all of these like different different aspects that, that we've been talking about um, we've been talking about for a while um, you know so I mean as as as, uh, as Matt was mentioning you know we do screenings and I've helped with a few of those um, you know, reading groups go on and I'm you know uh, uh, and, uh, and there's you know some interest for me there and so on uh, there's also these, these these podcasts that we do which are like it's a, it's a form that like I'm very familiar with and uh, um, it's definitely a form that like holds a lot of interest, holds a lot of interest to me. Um, yeah, so I think I think I'm really interested primarily to like um, 
connect with the sort of special kind of space woodbiners and like you know see what kinds of like intellectual and like academic output um, can arise from like um, the 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 kind of special conditions that we've been talking about. Um, obviously, like you know. Um, everyone's got their angle, but like what's very important about this space, as Matt was saying, is that like um, like people don't like instrumentalize it in a certain kind of way. Like it's not like okay, well here's my thing, and like you know um, everything in the space, like every way I engage with the space is like necessarily like subordinate to this like individual mission that I have, right? Um, I think I think if that's the way like people conducted themselves in the space, like things would fall apart really quickly. Um, because you know it would look like a lot of like other co-working spaces in the city but like um, I mean just given my own background and given my own like skill set I think like what comes more naturally to me is like thinking through the space as like uh, you know a place where like ideas are discussed and like you know a place where like people can encounter like academic and intellectual ideas like outside of you know, any kind of like formal institutional like university or other context, right? Um, um, and so my, yeah, I mean, as, as Matt was mentioning pedagogy, like one of my, like one of the things I'm working through, right, is like what it's like to, you know, teach or educate people in this kind of like non-hierarchical space. Um, um, yeah, so that kind of stuff, sort of like playing with ideas, thinking through like theory and pedagogy and these kinds of spaces. Like that's definitely more kind of like my passion passion in the space um, um which comes out of like the way i initially related to it but has also like evolved as i've like learned more about this like collective ethos that matt was talking about very cool thanks for sharing your evolution of perspective on woodbine and i think one of the really key things you said is how it's this space of respite from the city that is very centered around like consumption and taking from you and the pressures of trying to survive in a, a city that's so expensive. And so to have a space that's like, no, we don't want anything from you unless you want to give, here is just all the things you could need. I mean, you guys meet people's food needs you have a seed library, you have an internet network, a woodworking space, people can get bicycles. It's just like everything you could need in one space. And if it's not met in that space, you can meet somebody in that space that can meet your need. So it's incredibly special. And I would like to know what advice would you give to others that would want to have an autonomous community-centered space in a city. Yeah, I mean, I think first, you know, I think it's helpful to think about, you know, these other models, you know, to, to look around your city and be like, what are the kind of spaces that already exist? How do they work? How do they function? What are the things we like about them or don't like about them? Or, you know, what are spaces in other parts of the country that you might take, take, you know, inspiration from and just think about it a bit. And then at a certain point, a group of friends has to kind of dive in, you know, hopefully people you know, and trust and like, to kind of uh, to take that leap together. But yeah, you got to kind of just experiment, you know, and now I think is a good time. You know, some of us have been talking the last few months and we think maybe now because of the way the city's changed economically and socially after COVID that maybe this, whatever the post COVID moment, there could be this return to DIY spaces because so many, so much has closed and there's so much vacancy and there's so much sort of abandonment that, you know, there could be actually an interesting time for kind of experimentation with stuff like that, where you can make, you know, deals with landlords, you know, to, to rent spaces for cheaper than maybe they normally would have been pre-COVID. And yeah, I think put, you know, try to put some money together, borrow some money, do some kind of crowdfunding, you know, and, you know, there are all these stimulus kind of packages that went around and some people were still working, you know, so some people that were able to kind of maintain their jobs through 2020 and, you know, get these stimuluses. That was one kind of initiative that friends of ours around the country were to kind of redistribute these stimulus payments that maybe some people who are working didn't totally need, you know what I mean? And how can we put those in common 
basically the question is like, how do you put in common the excess that you don't need, you know, individually? And if everyone, if you have, you know, a dozen people, maybe that excess is kind of a lot, actually, you know, even if you individually don't have a lot, you know, initially, like with Woodbine, you know, at a certain point, there was a group of a dozen or so people and we each paid around $100 a month. You know, it's like not everyone has $100 a month, but some people do. And it's not that much. You know, if you think of like your the money you spend on the gym or the money you spend at the bar or the money you spend, you know, at the movie theater, you know, like how can you piece together, you know what I mean? You know, whatever it is. And maybe with that, you can rent a space. And then once you have a space, you do some interesting programming, you get the community and neighborhood involved, you build some goodwill hopefully people, you know, want to help and want to support. And from there, you're kind of on the ground running and you just try to keep it going. You know what I mean? You just keep, keep the ship afloat basically. But I think, you know, I think now is an interesting time where I think stuff like that might be possible, you know, in New York city in, in certain neighborhoods or something where, you know, maybe you see a little storefront or something or a little kind of, you know, whatever industrial or warehouse space. And you're like, you, you find out who the owner is, you talk to them. Also, some people, especially this last year, have been pretty generous or sympathetic, even sort of landlords, even though, you know, I know that can be hard to imagine. But if you're like, listen, we want to do this community project in the neighborhood, you know, it's not a store, it's not a business, we're not making money, we're trying to give back our time. You know, I think it's possible to find some landlords in, in, in neighborhoods that might be sympathetic to that, you know. And then once you kind of get that going, you see how you can build and develop and evolve. And, you know, obviously, depending on the people involved in the neighborhood and the community, each space will look different. You know, it's not like, you know, whatever, you know, like people will do different things and have different skills and different interests. But I think ideally, you know, like this would be something that would exist, you know, in, in different boroughs and neighborhoods around the city. And I think a lot of that's how basically churches functioned or like community centers or like, you know, hall, like Knights of Columbus halls or these different, you know, religious or secular or ethnic communities, you know, they have these things, you know what I mean? And how do people start them outside of those frameworks where it's not just about a religion or a particular kind of immigrant ethnic community that does it, you know, for survival, basically, but how to kind of different, you know, different kind of community or different kind of cultural relationships start something like that that involves different kinds of experiences and peoples and has a different diversity and then it's just an experiment and it will sort of evolve as it goes you know each month will probably look different than the last month and each year will look different than last year depending on what you do what you try that works or doesn't work or how people get involved or not but yeah that's I don't know if that's really coherent advice but that's some kind of framework that I would think about if you were interested in trying to start something like that thank you yeah that's actually the intention that I had with coming back to the city in April, I was like, okay, there's a ton of vacant spaces and I see the pandemic as being a sort of renaissance back to what New York used to be, like in the 80s when a lot of landlords abandoned their buildings and people started squatting and a lot of housing cooperatives came out of that. And the Municipal Arts Society actually created this map a few years ago of all of the vacant spaces in New York. And it was enough to be like a separate borough. And so who knows what it is currently. Um, I, I really love the idea of converted and vacant storefronts as well. And I agree with you. I think that a landlord would be sympathetic, especially if it's a space that's been vacant for a while and you're bringing something to the community that's going to add value and maybe potentially find them a long-term buyer if that's something they're interested in and you can be in that space temporarily. But yeah, I definitely see a lot of potential currently in more of these popping up. I think even now, if even if you could get like three months from a landlord, you know, you could be like, okay, can we just have three months in a, in a certain space? And then you could try to do stuff there. But then 
maybe you could build up a kind of audience or community just in those three months. And then from there, find a, a, a lease, a normal lease, you know, a longer term thing. I think people have to be experimental. You also have to talk to people. I mean, that's a big part of community building or organizing. You have to talk to your friends or comrades, but people in the community or neighborhood or you see a vacant storefront, you're like, what's up with that play? Like, who owns it? What what used to be there? You know, get to know, you know, when we before we moved into our current space, we walked around, you know, the entirety of Ridgewood and we looked at every vacant storefront and we made like a spreadsheet and we'd talk to people and we're like, what do you you know, what do you know that's open? You know, how much do these things cost? What used to be there? And it was a kind of survey. And even aside from like us moving in, we really got to know the neighborhood better and got to like see what was going on and what kinds of places there were. But I think there's lots of things that people can experiment with. And like you were saying, in, in the 70s and 80s, that's what people did in New York City, you know, and there was a lot of creativity with galleries and community spaces and political spaces because people were like just opening up stuff, you know what I mean? And like, you know, and, and you had a lot of, you know, art and politics that was really kind of experimental and, and thriving at that moment. And I think this could be something like that. Like you were saying, I totally agree with you. All right. So for my last question that I ask everyone, how do you envision a changed world? Yeah, that's a, that's a very big question. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I guess like, to pick up some of the themes that we've been, you know, uh, talking about in this conversation. I mean, I don't know that it would be like super helpful to <laughs> give some kind of like big picture revolutionary strategy, but like certainly like one lesson of like um, places like Woodbine is that like we'll definitely need um, um, experimental spaces like this where people can, you know, really figure out their capacities and, you know, learn how to relate to other friends and comrades and like build like robust and resilient like collectives um, in order to, you know, um, um, problem solve, like not just at the level of like small communities, but like whole societies, right? So I think that's like thinking about like um, forms of togetherness that can like withstand like sectarian issues and like, you know, or like the sort of like contingencies of like the political cycle and like, you know, uh, the ups and downs of like decades, like that kind of thing is like really important and like really central, I think, to like lasting social change. Um, like that's, and I think that's like one of the big lessons of a place like Woodbine, right? It's like, you wanna find those kinds of like collectives that like really stick, you know, despite, despite you know, all the things, you, you know, years and decades will throw at you. Um, yeah, that's, I think, is a really important thing to think through. I think for me, the question is like, there's two questions and they're sort of interrelated. One, you know, how do people's value systems change? You know, that's a really core thing and thinking about, you know, how, what that process is that happens. And the second thing is how do people themselves, you know, think of how to participate in a changing world or a changing society, not just as sort of passive spectator consumers, but how do how do people kind of jump in and actualize participating in a in a changed world or shifting the world? And 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 what's the relationship between the value system shift and the participation shift? And I think at Woodbine, we're trying to just experiment and be public and visible about working on those two fields and terrains and hope that people see something within it that they want to get involved in or it changes, you know, the, the way, the way in which they see the world and think the world works or start to kind of question, you know, a certain kind of value system that is prevalent where, you know, very individualized society, very competitive society, you know, very, um, you know, focused on a kind of selfish, you know, family-based, you know, way of thinking where providing for yourself, you know, everything having like a monetary value fixed to it and, and shifting to a different way of seeing the world and relating to the world, basically. And the question is just how do we help that process kind of accelerate or expand, basically. Um, so that's kind of broadly kind of guiding what we do and how we do it and, and why we do it and, and hope that those kind of things, you know, spread throughout the world. And I think, you know, this mutual aid experience 
globally or around COVID was hopefully a moment that addressed both of those things. You know, people seeing the dysfunction of the state and private sphere and not being able to respond to the pandemic and also wanting to get involved themselves individually and kind of meeting that need. I think that's basically what transformation would be. But, you know, outside of the context of a pandemic, that something like that would stick or hold or become permanent, basically. So I think, you know, that's sort of the question for me about about transformation. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Uh, It reminds me of this quote uh, that I've heard, seek not to change the world, but change your mind about the world. And it starts from that shift in perspective, really, and like an internal shift because our external world is such a reflection of what's going on internally. And so if we can, instead of thinking of the world as this horrible thing that we need to fix, it's like, how can we fix ourselves, fix our perspectives, and then have that reflected outward? So thank you both so much for being in conversation with me. Thanks Thanks for having us. Yeah, it was really nice. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode. I'm on a mission to get these little known solutions out to as many people as possible. So please help me by sharing, leaving a like, and a review. If you would like to stay in the loop about future episodes, please subscribe to the podcast or my newsletter at cooperativejournal.com. Because I didn't say save the world, I said change the world, improve it. Make it better than we find it.